Good morning. <laughs> it's good to see everybody. I, uh, I have to try harder this time. I, the last time I gave a lecture, someone came up afterward and says, oh, your style has changed. You've, you've become so serious, you sounded like a swami. And I, <laughs> I shuddered. <laughs> like, no, no, free, I want to be free. This, uh, this morning's lecture uh, is going to start with the, the very first poem in this book called Forgiveness is the Cash. And, uh, you know, whenever I read this poem, I sort of always shied away from this idea of forgiveness. I, didn't, I just was uncomfortable with starting off, you know, in debt. And uh, until I realized that really it's the foundation of freedom. He says, forgiveness is the cash you need. All other kinds of silver really buy just strange things. Everything has music. Everything has genes of God inside. But learn from those courageous, addicted lovers of glands and opium and gold. Look, they cannot jump high. They cannot laugh long when they are whirling. And the moon and the stars become sad when their tender light is used for night wars. Forgiveness is part of the treasure you need to craft your falcon wings and to return to your true realm, your realm of divine freedom. As we go in, I'm going to once again draw us through those most important things. Because I'm always... <laughs> I'm, I always think of uh, the, the Apostle John, the story or the myth about him is that he, you know, he was the only direct disciple of Jesus that wasn't killed, that wasn't martyred. And uh, he died in exile. And uh, there was a church, I suppose, on that island because the story is that every week they would, in his feeble old age, they would, two people would walk him up to the lectern and help him stand there and ask for his words for the, for the, uh, seekers in the audience and he always said the same thing you know he said brothers and sisters love one another and then they would take him back down and sit down to in his chair and you know he could get away with that because he was a realized soul and and uh, i'm sure when he told you to love one another that your heart jumped your heart stirred you know but it always gave me great uh, comfort that he was able to get up and say the same thing over and over and over again <laughs> And, and be appreciated for it. So here we go. We're going to dive in. The most important things in spiritual life this morning. The first one that Takor says, and, uh, and I love it because I think as, spiritual, as religious people, as spiritual seekers, we know this one in our heart. And as people who aren't seeking, people in the world, this is the one that you most hear the complaints about. And that is your earnestness and your sincerity. That we have to make a commitment to the divine and to ourselves and to each other to, to, to walk this path with earnestness and with sincerity. And Takur says, Ramakrishna says, that if you have that earnestness and that sincerity, that God himself or herself will take charge of your spiritual life and will make sure that you get home. So sharpen up that earnestness and that security, that, that earnestness and sincerity this morning and uh, commit to that. It's, a, it's, an, it's a, a sincerity that has to go deep inside. You know, when we hear spiritual truths and we're challenged and when we're, we hear things about the ideal that we don't quite match up to, it takes a sincerity and it takes an earnestness to not just let that float by, but to make a commitment to, 
to rise above ourselves, to, to take it higher uh, in our nature. And the second one, of course, I already alluded to in the first story, is from Jesus, when he was asked, what is the most important thing? And he said, love. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And he said, the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so it's a commitment to love. And uh, I like to think that in this world of Maya where nothing makes sense, I, I at least draw some sense out of the fact that Mother keeps in all religions, tries to keep the seekers together, tries to get them all to, to get together every now and then, you know, to draw on one another. And Takur says that that, uh, that holy company is vitally important. And why is that? Because of this most important thing, this love. This is your place to practice loving without being afraid of, of <laughs> being violated or getting hurt or having someone take advantage of it. That this is our laboratory uh, for learning to love one another and for learning to have an unconditional attitude of encouragement and acceptance and, uh, and uh, just helping each other along in the most beautiful and the most positive way. You know, I always think of Swamiji in that regard. I mean, he said amazing things to people. I mean, he said things to people that if I said them, <laughs> I'd be backhanded or, you know, punched right square in the jaw. And it's because of this element, because Swamiji carried love in front of him, like, I really believe that the reason he could say those amazingly harsh things, sometimes those crazy ridiculing things, belittling things, that absolute truth that he had inside, because nobody ever doubted that he loved them, that he cared about them. You know, it reminds me that I was told by a preacher in Albuquerque when I was growing up. He uh, told me, he says, you know, you can never correct somebody more than they believe that you love them. And so uh, that's the secret, you know to make sure that everybody knows how much you love them. That if you challenge somebody or if you have a correction for somebody, make sure that at least once before that time you, you, you told them about your love for them or you demonstrated your love for them as succinctly and as distinctly as you're about to correct them. <laughs> make sure that your efforts of loving and building up and encouraging are as obvious as your levels of criticism and, and uh, you know, uh, corrections of the people around you if that's necessary at all to correct anybody around you. The third one is truth. You know, we're all looking for, uh, for that, that which is true, that which is right, to build our lives on, to, to kind of true our course in this world. Because uh, this world in and of itself doesn't, doesn't seem to, to, uh, to offer that up easily. You have to do a lot of reflection and a lot of searching and a lot of uh, purifying inside to, to, to see a line that draws everything together, that it kind of explains everything that's going on in this world. And that, that truth has to be adhered to internally. Again, we've talked about that, that your mind, your words, your thoughts, that all, and your actions, that all of these things have to be in, in line with each other. You can't be saying one thing and doing another, you know, or thinking one thing and saying another that it's a matter of having that alignment inside. Uh, those who have been fortunate enough to be around a, a holy person or someone who's, who's done a lot of spiritual work, you find that their words have such a, a, a pure aim to them, like they have such an impact on you. They can say something that you've heard a thousand times in your life, but some reason when they say it, it means something, it hits something. And it's because of this element 
because of this integrity, that they are what they say, that they know what they say, they see what they say, they think what they say, they do what they say. All three of those powers come together, and it's got that power of a canon, you know? So when they say, God loves you, the only time in your life you hear that, that you break down in tears and feel, oh my God, that's beautiful, that's amazing. But a thousand people tell you you have bumper stickers everywhere telling you God loves you, and you never care at all. Like, oh yeah, I'm sure he does. <laughs> Great, on we go. So it's that, having that, that, that commitment to truth. So with those three things this morning, let's jump in to, uh, to whatever comes up. We'll see. The lecture title is Karma Conundrum. And uh, I have to admit I did that partly because it sounded cool. But <laughs> the idea, too, is that karma is one of those things that's very familiar to us, something that, that uh, we all can probably give a definition of and talk about. And yet I think it's one of the most misused concepts. Can I say that? Probably, why not? It's probably one of the most misused concepts in, in our Vedanta, something that we abuse uh, quite often. So uh, I thought we'd go through and first kind of try and define it and then uh, talk about how it's misused and then talk about how it's used and then actually uh, find some inspiration in it. Uh, by the end of this. So I have done my same uh, mistake every time. I've put together four pages of notes and I've never made it past two and a half. So uh, we'll dive in right here. Swamiji says that karma is the law of causation applied to conduct. So causation is funny because, you know, I've actually talked to people who say, oh, oh I don't believe in karma. Uh, you know, I, Christians in general have this idea that they don't believe in karma. And I know that just because my family is very Christian. And so I had this conversation with my father. But you find it there. You know, Jesus himself says, as you reap, or as you sow, so shall you reap. You know, that, that that you effect or cause has an effect that comes back to you. Science says that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You know, so it's, it's, it's a law that is built into the fabric of the world that we live in. And uh, it has a beautiful purpose behind it, which we're going to look at uh, later on. But that idea of karma basically is, if you insist on touching the stove, you're going to get burned. It doesn't matter whether you're a nice person or a mean person. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many people are you know, rooting for you and how many don't like you. You're gonna get burned just the same. It's a very neutral thing. It's, it's uh, quite often we, we take karma and we sort of think that it's a punishment, you know, that, that it's God's way of smacking you upside the head, you know, to get your attention. You could interpret it that way, but, you know, you don't tell a little kid not to touch the stove because God's going to punish him by burning his hand, you know, or the stove's going to punish you by burning your hand. You say, don't do it. You're going to burn your hand. There's no need to bring in a, a will or a, you know, a, punish, a punishing overlord to drive the point home. And so uh, there's no need for that this morning. So karma is not going to be about that this morning. So don't, let's not think about it in those terms. It's simply a law. It's simply a matter of fact that when you do something, something happens. That's karma. It goes back and forth. In addition to meaning this work, he says, we have stated that psychologically the word karma also implies causation. Any work, any action, any thought that produces an effect is called karma. This law of karma means the law of causation, of inevitable cause and sequence. Wheresoever there is a cause, there an effect must be produced. 
This necessity cannot be resisted, and this law of karma, according to our philosophy, is true throughout the whole universe. So it's something that we see everywhere. It's not something the sages made up and then, you know, superimposed over the universe. The universe manifested this truth. It showed us this truth, that, that everything is interlocked that way. And uh, this week I had a nice time just... Uh, <laughs> It's a confession as well. It's just kind of a story of laying in bed in the morning and was thinking about this idea of, of karma and this, this endless cycle of cause and effect. And uh, what a brilliant thing it is. I mean, just, just it's everywhere. You know, it's not just what we're doing and what we're thinking and, and how we're acting. It's going on outside. You know, even the things that are inanimate, even the planets spinning, I mean, all of them are bound by this law. And it's an intricate puzzle when you think about the mind that would have to put all of these things together and have them all dependent on one another and have them all affecting one another in just the right way so that you have this perfect cohesiveness. You know, it's like <laughs> very rarely, hopefully never in our experience, you know, does the earth go pounding into another planet? <laughs> I guess the danger's there. But uh, another thing to worry about. But this idea that, that how smooth and how beautiful everything works together. I got the idea of this puzzle that I had when I was a teenager. I think I got it for Christmas. It was a little wooden block. And it was made up of a whole bunch of intricate pieces that were fit together. But, but when it was together, you, you couldn't break it. It wouldn't move. It wouldn't twist. It was like you were convinced it was fixed like that. Except that there was this one piece that would move like an eighth of an inch when you pushed on it. And I, I, you know, my first day with that puzzle, after the, I'd thrown it at least three times, I, I found that little piece that moved an eighth of an inch, and I just kept working and working and working it, thinking that that was the first piece that came loose. I didn't realize that when you move that little piece an eighth of an inch, then you go to the other side and push this piece, and it goes all the way out. And then the puzzle literally collapses, and your fingers comes undone. And that's the goal of our karma lesson this morning, is to come to the place where we find out what has to be wiggled and what piece has to be pushed for the whole thing to come undone, for us to find our freedom. Vivekananda says, This idea of one being held down fast by past karma or work is all nonsense. <laughs> no matter how dense one may be or how bad one ray of light will dissipate it all. A bale of cotton, however large it may be, will be utterly destroyed by a spark. If a room has been dark for untold ages, a lamp will end it all. So with each soul, however benighted he may be, he is not absolutely bound down by his past karma to work for ages to come. One ray of divine light will free him, will reveal him his true nature. So, we're not allowed to blame karma <laughs> anymore. I think, uh, and, and I think this is the primary way, if that's important what I think, I think this is the primary way that, that karma is abused. Because we use karma most of the time in sort of a giving up sort of way, ah, it's my karma, what to do? You know, you get hit by a car, ah, oh, it was my karma, what could I do? So we use it to explain current conditions or to explain, you know, conundrums or bad events or unfortunate events. Uh, and, and, and 
we sort of just throw up our hands and think, ah, we're victims, you know? Ah, that's karma, the big thing, this big law that just grinds on and I'm ground up in it and what can I do? And uh, Swamiji says that's absolutely nonsense. So if you hear anybody after this lecture today blaming their karma for something, ah, that's absolutely nonsense. <laughs> I heard it from Swamiji. Don't put my name in there. It's Swamiji's name. It's a, there's this eternal hope, you know, it's this great thing. It's the, it's the beautiful thing about spiritual life, actually. It's one of the, the fundamental elements of spiritual life is this constant knowledge that it's never hopeless. You're never stuck. The possibility of freedom is there at every moment. Your realization when you sit down to do your meditation is totally possible. It's totally possible that it will happen here and now. And to, to, to live with that kind of hope and that kind of starry-eyed optimization, opt, 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 optimism, <laughs> there it is. That optimism uh, is what keeps you young when you grow old. You know, it's what returns you to, to the state of a child who's just walking around in starry-eyed bliss, looking at this world, just talking to grasshoppers and playing with leaves and, you know, making comments to the wind and telling it to stop blowing and, he has this relationship with everything as if it's alive, as if it's divine. And this, this, this optimism of youth. You've got your whole life in front of you. You know, everything's about what you're going to be. What do you want to accomplish, you know, when you grow up? You're going to be a fireman or a policeman. Those are the big ones, you know. I, of course, I don't remember. I'm not going to talk about what I was going to be. <laughs> he says, in, in the intro to the gospel, the writer says, She is the mother of the universe identical with Brahman of Vedanta and with the Atman of Yoga. As the eternal lawgiver, she makes and unmakes laws. It is by her imperious will that karma yields its fruit. She ensnares men with illusion and again releases them from bondage. With a look of her benign eyes, she is the supreme mistress of the cosmic play, and all objects, animate and inanimate, dance by her will. I read that and I liked it so much because it made this life a conversation. It made this law that, this, that seems to bind the universe. It makes it a conversation with the divine because mother is directly responsible. She's, she's the one, you know, that is using this to, to raise us up or to drive us down further on the path of a wrong idea until we get the notion that it's a wrong idea and turn around. You know, that when, 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 when she does burn your hand on the stove, you can see it. Oh, that's not a good idea. Don't go that way again. I won't do that anymore. You know, it's this constant conversation. It's like having your mother with you growing up. And she's always, you know, telling you, you know, you, you get there and get a big handful of dirt when you're a little kid. And she opens your fist and she says, put that down. It's dirty. It's dirty. <laughs> Don't play with that. If she didn't do that, you know, what would this room look like this morning? You all come in with your hands of dirt if she hadn't told you <laughs> to put it down when you were three. So it's like that. Make your life a conversation. Take that perspective on the world. See the dance of mother like Swamiji calls it. You know, we go around spending our lives just begging for, for oh, please give me a glimpse of you, Ma. Oh, please give me your vision. Oh, let me see God. 
And, and Vivekananda is so alive in his relationship with that divinity. We're going to see that. I found the most beautiful passage of his that I'm going to end the lecture with this morning. But this, this notion that he lived in a world that was dynamic and vivid and alive with God because he understood that he had never seen anything but God, that he had never experienced anything but God. And he saw it and knew that to be true. And karma is an element of that. Karma is sort of the, the, the language of conversation as it will, as you, as you will, you know, during your day. That, that the way that you live, the things that you do have an effect on you. If you're acting in accordance with your nature, if you're acting in accordance with that love, which is what you are, that will always bring a positive result to you. You know, you will feel good about it. There's a reason that you feel good about selflessness. You know, there's reason that you feel good inside about being unselfish or giving to somebody or caring about somebody in an earnest way. It's because it's what you are. And when you act in accordance with that, the results demonstrate that to you. And when you act selfishly, you know, when you, you act from a place that comes from the material world where you believe that you're small, that you're a body and a mind, karma will revolt. Karma will poke you in the side. You know, if you're lucky, it'll just be a poke. <laughs> It can be much more harsh than that. But to understand and to, and to carry on that conversation and to take it that way, you know, so, uh, Sri Nishagadatta Maharaj, she says that all pain is a, is a, is a, is a call to inquiry. You know, that, that, that when the world is pushing back on you, it's a call to inquiry. What am I attaching to? What am I holding on to? You know, what is it that's causing this pain? And then look to mother to release it. That surrender, ah, as you will, ma. That's where the surrender comes. It comes out of love, not out of a, a victimis, victimization, not out of a exasperation of ah. But it comes out of, a, out of knowing that the mother is acting out of love and that the one motivating power in this universe is love and love alone. Nothing is done by any other motive. And if you don't believe that, just study the thing that you're looking at until you can see the power, the, the love behind it. You'll, norm, you'll normally have to get on the same side of the coin as the actor that you're judging and have to look from their perspective to see the love in them that motivated that act. But Thakur and Swamiji actually say that, that everything in this world is motivated by love. Now this idea of karma, the abuse of it, this, this, this putting it on as, 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 as the thing that kind of explains all the bad stuff going on in our life or why we can't change or why we have bad habits, we just blame it all in there. There was a very famous interval uh, that uh, Swamiji went through with this young man that came to his uh, office to talk to him, as it were. And uh, Swamiji says that during a famine, when lakhs of people, your own brothers and sisters, he's talking to an Indian man, have fallen into the jaws of death because of this great famine, you have not thought it your duty, though having the means to help them in this terrible calamity with food. You know, so he's asking this guy that's come to ask him for some money. The preacher that came to him says, no. He says, this famine broke out as, as the result of men's karma, their sin. It is a case like karma, like fruit, you know? So, this, so there's this huge famine going on. It turns out this man's actually acting, asking for money to feed cows. <laughs> I know in our context, that's like, what? But in the Indian context with, you know, the, the cow being such a revered symbol of sattvic character and, and peace, you know, this guy thought that his duty in the famine was to take care of the cows. Swami's about to let him know very gently that that's not the way to go. He says, hearing these words, sparks of fire, as it were, scintillated in Swamiji's eyes. His face became flushed, but he suppressed his feeling and said, 
Those associations which do not feel sympathy for men, and even seeing their own brothers dying from starvation, do not give them a handful of rice to save their lives, while giving away piles of food to save birds and beasts, I have not the least sympathy for, and I do not believe that society derives any good from them. If you make a plea of karma by saying that men die through their karma, then it becomes a settled fact that it is useless to try or struggle for anything in this world, and your work for the protection of animals is no exception. With regard to your cause also, it can be said, the mother cows, through their own karma, have fallen into the hands of the butchers and die, and we need not do anything in the matter. The Swamiji began to speak to the, to the disciples who were there. He says, words like these, Forsooth, says he that men are dying by reason of their karma, so what avails doing any kindness to them? This is the second way that I've heard karma abused and talked about. When we justify the misery of others, ah, that's their karma. You know, if you see a hungry man on the street, ah, that was, that's his karma. He's getting what he deserves, <laughs> you know. You're actually hearing that in the politics these days, kind of references like that. It's a way of hardening the heart. You can't use karma that way, and there's two very distinct reasons that you can't use karma that way. The first of all is that you know nothing of that man's karma. It's a statement, a sheer meaningless statement of ignorance on your part. How can you presume, and what a presumption it is, to know the intricate workings of karma in a person's life to let them suffer because you've determined that that's the outcome of their karma? What kind of thinking is that? And then if you go around blaming everything on karma, that everything is just as it should be, without having any faith in that, without having any... any uh, uh, coherent belief in that because you don't treat yourself that way you know you don't you don't dismiss your own suffering that way you're always trying to help yourself you're always trying to you know get yourself food you're never sitting down and like oh, I'm 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 homeless because I deserve it and if you do get that kind of attitude <laughs> this still applies what good is that where can you go with that what can you do with that so you never use the explanation of karma to point at somebody else it's not helpful to them. It's not helpful to you. It's a huge presumption on your part. And it lacks the love of God. Because while it may be true that that person is suffering for their karma, while, while that may in the universe be true because mother's in charge, you neglect to understand that you're a part of that puzzle and that the love that mother has put in you, the empathy that mother is trying to build in you, the fact that she's told you about the oneness of all things and she sees that suffering going on and you walking by and glibly signing it off, not understanding that she was relying on you to show kindness, that she was relying on you to, to, to give this man hope, to raise his eyes that he's not a victim, that mother is still present, you know, that she still has him in her eyes. You neglect to see that as you walk by. So karma is not for blaming other people, and it's not for looking at your life and blaming your condition on. It's not something that's third party that's affecting you, that's locked you up and gotten you stuck, and you're just here until you've paid for it, that there's no way out except for that. Because Swamiji has reminded us that in a moment, Mother can lift that. She makes and unmakes laws. She's not bound by any of these things. And this brings apart a very important point that is going to come into play as we try and take karma and use it in the right way. And we have to think about the scriptures. Why do they exist? 
Why did the why did the sages ever put together these ideas of karma and rebirth and you know transmigration and all of these things? What what was the point of that? You know, when when they tell us about how the the Atman steps down through the different sheaths to manifest as the as the body, why are all of these things in the scriptures? I ask why because the ultimate truth is what that there's one without a second that God alone is. That means that anything else that you set up within that you know realm is not going to be true in and of itself. That this idea of karma that would be a second to the one, <laughs> you know, like this isness of God. So why is it there? All of the scriptures and all of these notions and all of these theories are put together for one reason, to get you out, to set you free. They're rope ladders that the sages are dangling down to you. They're not truths in and of themselves. They're tools and perspectives that will give you freedom, that can help you break out of your way of thinking that can help you break out of the mundane that you've accepted as unchangeable when in fact everything is changeable. They're ideas to bring about your enlightenment, your freedom, and they should be used as such. They're not there to make you spiritual biologists, as it were, or spiritual physicists about how the universe is put together. They're not, it's not helpful to know those things to the nth degree. It's helpful to learn how to use them. This idea of karma was put there to set you free. In what way? We're going to dive into that. Every act of selfishness or thought of selfishness makes us attached to something. And immediately we are made slaves. Each wave in the chitta says, I and mine. It immediately puts a chain around us and makes us slaves. And the more we say, I and mine, the more slavery grows and the more misery increases. Therefore, karma yoga tells us to enjoy the beauty of all the pictures in the world, but do not identify yourself with any of them. So it's this me and mine that is causing the trouble. You see, karma in and of itself is a neutral thing. It just happens. Boom, tree falls over, hits another tree, that tree falls over. It's just going on all the time. The thing that causes us to suffer from karma is our attachment to the things involved. That idea of me and mine you know, one harsh way. It is pretty harsh. But you know, when you sit on it, when you, I was talking to someone the other day that had had somebody pass away for them and they were really grieving about it. And, uh, you know, they're very close friends so I could talk this way without offending them. And I was just saying, look, I said, people die every day. Right now, someone's dying in the world. And where's our pain for it? Where, who's weeping? for it here. So it's not the dying that matters. Dying happens constantly, every day. Every one of us will experience that in this life, seemingly, you know, that we go through this death. So it's around us all the time. That's not the problem. The problem is when me and mine gets affected, when it's your mom or your dad or your friend, you know, that that attachment inside hurts. You know, you've, you've, you've identified with them. And that's what causes the pain. That's what causes the hurt. Not necessarily that the person died. The person, that's a natural thing. That can be a beautiful thing. You know, there's a release in that. There's a freedom in that. There's a statement that this is not what we are. That this isn't lasting forever. That this cycle of depression and happiness, hunger and, and sate and being sated, 
you know, making your bed and unmaking it, washing the dishes and dirtying them again. It's like if you start thinking in life as it really is, thank God for death. <laughs> I mean, really, thank God for, for, for this idea of freedom that, that we actually break out by default, you know, because we're just going in circles over and over and over and over again. You know, every day you lay down to know, oh, God, I'm going to have to go through that whole process of getting up in the morning again. You know, I hate that part. <laughs> you know, it's like, and it just goes round and round and round. The seasons are coming. I had to write to all my friends in California this week and send them a picture of all the colored leaves saying, ready or not, here the winter comes. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is my third winter in 30 years. So it just keeps going round and round and round. The seasons don't last long enough here, by the way. Just as soon as you get used to that 90 degrees, suddenly it drops to 60. And as soon as you realize how lovely that is, it drops below freezing, you know. And then, and then you get used to being inside looking out at the beautiful snow, and suddenly the spring is here, and then you have to mow the lawn again. And so <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> so you have to see things in their proper perspective begin to understand them in their proper perspective. You know, let go of the me and mine that interprets them through the, the lens of a small particular, a point of view, you know, that's temporary and not true. Because you are everyone. You know, it's one of my favorite stories about Sri Nishagadatta, one of the favorite Q&As, and I've shared it, like I've shared everything that I say numerous times. But he says that, he says that when he sees a sufferer on the street, he says. When he actually talks to the person who's asking. He says, "When you see a sufferer, so on the, when you see someone suffering on the street, you see someone suffering because you see from the outside in. You see the suffering. You see the person. You know, and you don't you don't get back to their humanity until you work through the different levels and come to the understanding. Oh, they're a human being." He says, "When I see a sufferer, I suffer. I don't see a man suffering." because I don't go from the outside in. I suffer because I know that it is me experience suffering. So he has that full empathy, 100% knowledge that the, this oneness of the world exists. You know? And so he sees that suffering and he doesn't look from the outside in and see suffering. He feels the suffering. He is the sufferer and he acts accordingly. That's a person who sees the world properly who empathizes properly, who understands the nature of things, doesn't, doesn't you know, shift blame off on, on a system of thought, on karma, yoga, you know, whatnot like that. And he acts accordingly. So every time that we act out of selfishness, every time we act out of a self or particular interest of our own, he says, that's attachment. You want to know what attachment is? It doesn't have to be a theoretical thing. Every time you act out of selfishness, that's attachment. You want a working example? Go grab the last slice of pizza and sit there and think about how it feels. <laughs> you know, And you turn around and look at the other six people in line and you've got the last piece in your hand. Feel that. <laughs> look closely at how they're observing you. you know? <laughs> understand. Understand the real fruit of attachment. You know, <laughs> know where, where selfishness really leads. Through that kind of thinking, that kind of understanding, then you you yourself will let go of attachment. You know, we like to talk about attachment like like it's hugging a teddy bear. You know, that it's this harmless little thing. I love my teddy bear. It's not hurting anybody in the world, but in fact, your attachment does hurt everybody, including yourself. You know, and so don't be like that. 
See every child as your child, every neighbor as your neighbor, every mother as your mother, and act accordingly. That's that's that is holy mother, you know, when she expressed not well, expressed a desire to talk over for having children. He said, "Ah, oh, I'll give you children beyond number." And she understood immediately. She understood immediately, and the world became her children. Everybody became her child, and she opened her heart that way, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of anything. She opened her heart. Yeah. That's the proper way. That's the proper way. So don't be attached. Don't apply me and mine. I went to, when I was in North Carolina this last time. I went to this. Uh, 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 seminar, a day-long seminar uh, on Advaitism, and uh, one of the lecturers that was uh, giving a talk was talking about the, uh, an Advaitic practice during meditation, and uh, he was saying that you should remain a verb, that you should not become a noun during your meditation, that, that this I shouldn't be here, that if you're having a good meditation, if you, if you just let it be, it will get better and it will get deeper, but as soon as you apply me and mine, I'm having a good meditation. Boy, it just, the hose just turns off immediately. You know, it's like, and you're like, whoa, well, how do I get that back? And then you start, you know, the meditation becomes about finding a good meditation instead of meditating. You're searching around for that good experience. Me and mine will shut down spiritual life like that, you know. And karma is about breaking this idea of me and mine. When you act in, the, in ways of me and mine, you feel that discomfort. It brings the result. It's like, ouch. And what is that result? If you're acting from, a, from, that, from that place of smallness, you will always be small. You see, you're infinite. We bring that notion of our infinity into this world with us. We didn't learn it here because there's nothing in this world that's infinite. There's nothing infinite here. So how do we know of infinity? You know, we know because we brought that idea in with us. Eternity. How do we know of eternity? Nothing lasts forever in this world. And yet we understand this notion of eternity. We bring it with us into this world. You know, we understand. And so when we act in this world, if we believe that we're small, if we believe ourselves to be this body, we have this notion of our nature within us that's going to try and create infinity through the body, through the senses. You can't do it. You can't do it. You know, when I was a kid, I had asthma. And I was uh, the doctor. I was telling the doctor, he was saying, "How does it feel?" And I was like, "Well, it's it's like trying to breathe through a stir stick, <laughs> you know, those little plastic ones with the little holes. <laughs> you just you can't you can't breathe enough." I remember taking a walk when I was 13 in Germany, and I was walking uh, along the crest of this hill. And there was a whole bunch of rolling hills. And they were they were uh, wheat fields or alfalfa fields. And it was kind of dark and stormy, and there was a wind blowing across that grass. And that, you know how the, how the grass kind of rolls in the wind, that shiny wave that kind of goes across it? And as a kid, I was standing there, and I was just, I was so overcome and so frustrated because I couldn't appreciate it enough. You know, I, I opened all of my senses up. I was just opened up. And I couldn't appreciate it. It was so beautiful. And I couldn't appreciate it enough. I just, the window wasn't big enough for that to come in. I wanted to be able to just jump up and spread out like a blanket and cover all of it at once, you know. And I just stood there 
feeling this limitation, feeling this notion that I was looking at something that was infinitely beautiful and I would never be able to hold it. I would never be able to capture it. And that is the essence of, of spiritual life, you know. That's the essence of spiritual life is, is fixing that problem. Fixing that problem. Yeah. That's Takur. Takur constantly going into ecstasy because he saw that beauty all the time saw that beauty all the time, had no me and mine involved in it at all. And just the body shut down and he had to go to higher places, just driven to this infinite space to appreciate this world, you know, to be able to see it. So we have to break free of this I and mind, this smallness of mind, and understand that there is no way in this world for us to express our infinity. There's no way for us to express our eternity here. And to just let it be as it is. Understand that as a whole, it gives us an idea. It's a symbol of that divinity that is within us. You know, that it's, a, that it's something beautiful to, to, to remind us of our own nature. Not for something for us to own. Not something to manipulate. Not something to take. Not something to eat or enjoy. But something that's just there to remind us of how beautiful that infinity that, 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 that's that infinite self that is within, whose basis and function is love. It's to keep our eyes on that and to remind us at every turn, it's worth it. Keep letting go. Keep letting go. Don't get stuck. Don't get small. Don't get small. Get bigger. Get bigger. Let go. Let go. See it as it is. Work incessantly, but give up all attachment to your work. Do not identify yourself with anything. Hold your mind free. All this that you see, the pains and the miseries, they are but necessary conditions of this world. Poverty and wealth, happiness, they're all but momentary. They do not belong to our real nature at all. Our nature is far beyond misery, far beyond happiness, beyond every object of the senses, beyond your imagination. And yet we must go on working all the time. Misery comes through attachment, not through work. <laughs> that's a big secret right there. <laughs> that's a big secret that it's not what you're doing that's making you miserable. You know, I, <laughs> yeah, that's a big lesson. That's a big lesson. I go back to my story, story 17A, if you're keeping track, <laughs> about cleaning the shrine in San Francisco with all of its thousands of little you know, gingerbread pieces that I had to sit there and fold the napkin. And, and I hated that job. Oh my God. I hated that job for so many years. I sat there and I told this story before, but I'll tell it again to remind myself. And one day I finally just had it. It had been like eight years. I'd been cleaning the shrine that was never dirty and spending, <laughs> spending so much time and effort and doing it just because I knew that that's what I was supposed to be doing. And I thought, this work makes me miserable. <laughs> this, this is horrible. And I literally sat on the shrine. It's, it's, it's not like this shrine. It would be the same as here. I kind of just pushed the flowers aside, and I sat there next to the takor on the shrine. Probably not the best thing to do, but I did it. And I sat there, and I put the cloth down, and I just turned, and I just looked at, looked at him, and I said, I'm, I'm just sick of this tuck. <laughs> I said, I said, the shrine has never been dirty, and I'm cleaning it more than I clean anything else in this building. And it's like, there's a lot more dirty stuff that needs this attention. I hate it. 
I said, and yet there's no one else. I'm the, I'm the only brahmachari. I can't even give it to my junior, you know, <laughs> and make him suffer. And I was sitting there, I was thinking, God, I'm, I'm you know, according to my commitments, I'm going to be here the rest of my life. And at that point, I thought, I'm going to be cleaning the shrine the rest of my life. I can't do this. And I sat there, and I had a meditation about it. I sat there because I was really looking for an answer, because I really was feeling like, oh, I, I hate this. And uh, a new way of thinking, however you want to believe that happens, a new way of thinking came into my mind. And I like to think that Takur put the thought there. He said to me in my mind, he said, that's because you're always just doing it to get it finished. He said, work is never pleasant if you're just doing it to get it finished. He says, do it because I'm here with you and we're doing this together. You know, because it's your worship of your ideal. You know, get involved in it and let it be what it is and offer it up as it goes and make it an experience of being with me, being together. And that changed, that changed everything. To get in there and let it just do it for its own sake. Don't sit there and do it to get it finished, to get it out of the way. But, but throw yourself into it. Do it excellently. Do it well. Do it beautifully. Whatever it is, no matter how mundane the, the task might be, do it with, with focus. That's the whole secret of that tea ceremony. Has anybody seen a Buddhist tea ceremony? You know, at the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, they have actually a little tea cottage built inside the museum. And they have a, a Buddhist tea server do the tea ceremony for two people. Uh, and everybody else can stand outside and look in the windows of this little cottage. It's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen because they're doing it for its own sake. And nothing is being done in that ceremony that has any divided attention to it at all. That person who's serving the tea is doing exactly one thing at a time. And with such a steadiness and a precision, you know, the touching of the teapot, the picking up of the teapot, the moving it toward the cup, you know, the tilting into the cup, all of it, there's such an exquisite beauty to something that is done with full attention, to something that is done with a mind that's not multitasking. You know, that's not thinking 19 different things at a time. And it reveals the profundity of this place, of this life, of this world. When you do things with attention like that, it betrays the profundity of it. It betrays the un unseen infinity behind it. In the mood and in the movements and in the attention, love comes through. It can't be explained as anything else. You know? To have that kind of, 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 of work when you do something, not to identify with it, not to make it something that you have to get out of the way, not something that you make a judgment about. I like doing this or I don't like doing this. What value is that? Just do it. Be there with it. Don't make that decision, I like this or I don't like this. Never query your mind for that. That's one of the most destructive things as a seeker. <laughs> There's a lot of mosts today. This is another one. It's one of the most destructive things to do is to query your mind. You know, I used to go out in San Francisco. I had five possible walks that I could do every day. And I, <laughs> there were days after, I, after you've been doing the same five walks for around 10 years, choosing which one you're going to do kind of becomes a quandary. You know, so I'd walk out on that front stoop of the porch, ready to go down the stairs to the street, and I'd be like, okay, which one do I want to do? That would be a big quandary, you know, it'd be like, because one of them went through the commercial district so I could look at all the shops and windows and see all the people. The other one went through the woods, one went down by the beach. And I would sit there, and there were days when it would put me in a bad mood. 
Like I would get in a bad mood because I couldn't decide which walk to do. I couldn't commit to one of them. And so I realized that, thank goodness, saw that, that I was querying my mind for its desires. I was like, why is a monk querying his mind for a desire? Why am I doing that? I should just go out and start walking and enjoy the walk that I walk into. Just go with it. Just be with it. And I understood that when you make decisions in your mind, when you offer something to your mind, do you like this? Do you not like this? That you're hypnotizing yourself. Because you didn't have a like or dislike naturally, right? It just takes it in. But then you think about it. No, I don't like that. Or I do like that. And then if you decide you don't like it, you never like it. And the surprising thing is, is that sometimes that's not true. You know, like when I was a kid, I hated peas. I hated them. I used to try and hide them. You know, if I, if I was eating dinner, I would, I would, we ate our laundry, believe it or not, in my house, our dining table was in the laundry room. And mom wouldn't let me get up from that table until I'd eaten all my peas. I, I didn't want to eat those peas, or the green beans. I didn't want them either. And thank goodness, there was a big bucket of laundry detergent right next to my seat. And I don't know how much of my laundry growing up was done with peas and peas and green beans in it because I used to slip them off my plate and dump them into the laundry uh, uh, powder. <laughs> Apparently, Ma never saw it. But uh, <laughs> these ideas. But then when I got older, I found out I liked peas. And if you put some pepper on them, I really liked peas. But I had spent all of my teenage years fully convinced that I didn't like peas. Why? Because you make those decisions. These things come in... You, you query the mind, you develop your, dis your likes and your dislikes, and you hypnotize yourself into a person who has a constant string of preferences. And slowly and little by little, you subjugate yourself to your will, to your desire, where you can't do things that you don't like and you can't enjoy you know, the things that you do like because they end, <laughs> because they're over. No vacation's ever long enough. So it's on the simple day-to-day -day stuff like that that very big things are happening in your life. Something simple like deciding, I like this food, I don't like this food. Everybody who knows me is rolling their eyes. They're like, yeah, we see you've tackled that one. <laughs> but this whole idea, don't query your mind. Don't let that me and mine attach. Don't let that happen. It happens with people, too. You know, you meet everybody for the first time, and they're just a person, and you're meeting them, and you're curious about them, and you're asking questions about them. And then at some point, you decide you don't like them. And you never talk to them again. <laughs> You're never curious about them again. You never wonder about them anymore. And every time you see them, it's a negative experience because you've determined ahead of time, I don't like them. So stop it. Stop it with this me and mine. You know, that comes in and affects your life. Makes you miserable. Fills the world half with half people that you don't like and the other half that you do like but don't get enough time with. You know, there's misery in that. That's why, that's why he's telling us all of this is misery. You know. Don't get caught up in it. He talks about this idea, you know, that, that we're stuck in this world. He says, nobody has ever seen anything produced out of nothing. If anything arises in the mind, that also must have been produced by something. When we speak of free will, we mean the will is not caused by anything. But that cannot be true. The will is caused, and since it is caused, it cannot be free. It is bound by law. This idea that, 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 that you know, there is no freedom in this world. That it's, it's, I was just talking with somebody about this yesterday. You know, that, that there was a time in my life where I did whatever I wanted and I thought I was free. Because I never tried to do something I didn't want to. To realize how bound I was. 
So as long as you believe that you're the body, as long as you believe that you're this body and mind, when it, when it beckons, I want some tea, you run and get to go to the kitchen and make some tea, and you think you're free because you get to make tea whenever you want it. But the fact is, you didn't want it. The mind wanted tea. The body wanted tea. And you're confused. You don't know that there's a distinction. And that the mind has been asking you for things constantly. And you're running all over the place all the time getting these things for your body. I want an orange sweater. I want more sugar in that. I want chicken for lunch. I don't want that. You know, oh God, I have to go to work again. You know, it's like, oh, let's go to that movie. No, not that movie, that movie. Let's go with that person. Not those two though, that person. So we're running along feeding this spoiled child constantly, this child called me and mine, running around serving it all the time, thinking we're free. What a brilliant trick that is. <laughs> what a brilliant trick that is for mother to, well, we've created this puzzle for ourselves, to, to be completely enslaved and to have no knowledge of it. What a perfect slave you are, <laughs> you know? That's the best kind of slave, actually, to have somebody who's completely subservient to you and has to take care of everything that you want to do and has no idea that they're a slave. <laughs> you know, that's the nature of this world when you bring in me and mine. You're a slave. You're not free to say yes until you're free to say no. So break free of it altogether. Be free in that. There's a song in Bhartrihari's Verses on Renunciation. O Shiva, when shall I be able to cut to the very root of my karma? By becoming solitary, by becoming desireless, by becoming quiet. My hands, only, my, hands my only plate, and the cardinal points my clothing. The fruits are sufficient food, the waters of the mountains sufficient dinner, the earth a sufficient bed, and bark a sufficient garment. These are all welcome. So this idea of, of being free in your nature, seeing the world of what it is, it's a manifestation of yours. Everything is yours already in this world. Swami Prabhupada gave a lecture once, and he, was, he said uh, you know, that when he was, went to a shopping mall for the first time, he felt that flicker of desire in there and he said he said he said then I saw immediately he said everything in here is already mine I can go to any shelf that I want and put it on walk around the store wearing it you know enjoying it and then when I'm finished I just put it back there so I keep all of those things in that store you know and when I want to wear them I can go to that store and put them on and walk around the store and then put them back when they're finished so this idea that he that everything the world was already his why did why did he need to why did it bother him that he had to keep it there instead of here? You know, why would that become a problem? To have that notion, to be content. He allows you to work. He allows you to exercise your muscles in this great gymnasium. Not in order to help him, but in order to help yourself. Stand in that reverent attitude to the whole universe, and then will come perfect non-attachment. This should be your duty. This is the proper attitude of work. This is the secret taught by karma yoga. Yeah. That everything is helpful. All of your work is helpful to you somehow. And it's not helpful to the world. You're not doing it for the world. You're not doing it, you're not giving that person a sandwich for that person. You're giving it why? Because Sri Nishagadatta Maharaj understood. I'm the sufferer. You're the sufferer. By giving that person a sandwich, you're not helping someone. You're feeding yourself. 
because you are that same being looking through those eyes and meeting the gaze of yourself looking through these eyes. You know, that's your duty, to see the world in oneness like that, to serve in a free way like that, that doesn't indebt anybody. The person that you're helping doesn't become subservient to you. Your ego doesn't catch fire because you become nicer and bigger. Break free of that thinking. Now, I promised... I'm, I'm over time by three minutes here, I see that. I'm going to read this last passage to you, though. It's in a book called Swami Vivekananda on Himself, and it's in chapter 10, and I'm telling you that because I want you to go read it. I've only got a portion of it here, and it's going to be, take a bit to read. This is amazing. Do you want to see somebody who understands karma, somebody who understands the, getting rid of the me and mine and what it produces in the heart? This is Swamiji on Himself. If ever a man found the vanity of things, I have it now. This is the world, hideous, beastly corpse. Who thinks of helping it is a fool. But we have to work out our slavery by doing good and evil. I have worked it out, I hope. May the Lord take me to the other shore. To set the work going, I had to touch money and property for a time. Now I am sure my part of the work is done, and I have no more interest no more interest in Vedanta or any philosophy in the world or the work itself. I am getting ready to depart, to return no more to this hell, to this world. Even its religious utility is beginning to pall me. May Mother gather me soon to herself, never to come back any more. I have given up the bondage of iron, the family tie. I am not to take up the golden chain of religious brotherhood. I am free, must always be free. I am as good as retired. I have played my part in the world. I had a message from India to the West, and boldly I gave it to the American and to the English peoples. I have worked my best. If there is any seed of truth in it, it will come to life. I am satisfied in my conscience that I did not remain an idle Swami. I have a notebook which has traveled with me all over the world, and I find these words written seven years ago, now to seek a corner and lay myself there to die. Yet all of this karma remained. Through Maya, all is doing good came into my brain, now, and now they are leaving me. I long, oh, I long for my rags, for my shaven head, my sleep under the trees, and my food from begging. Never before in my life have I realized more forcibly the vanity of the world. I have roused a good many of our people. That was all I wanted. Let things have their course and karma its way. I have no bonds here. I have seen life, and it is all self. Life is for the self, love for the self, honor for the self, everything for self. I look back and scarcely find any action I have done for self. Even the wicked deeds were not for self, so I am content. I have seen the truth. Let the body float up or down. Who cares? Now this goes on, where he goes on to talk about, I am only the boy that sat at the feet of the beloved master, you know, by the side of the Ganga. And he just reminiscences. He knows this freedom. He's finished. He sees this world as it is. The world, not, not the world as manifestation of the divine. That's not what's hideous, what's a hideous corpse. It's the world of me and mine that all of us are subject to, that he's calling a hideous corpse, that he's free from, that he calls a hell because of its, its bondage. You're constantly running after the senses, never free, always a slave. The mind says, 